This is The Healthy Sensitive, episode 27. Welcome everyone to The Healthy Sensitive. I'm Leah Burkhart, your hostess on the show. And today what I wanted to go over was uh, kind of sort of do a breeze through of Susan Cain's book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Won't Stop Talking, or perhaps Can't Stop Talking, one of those two. Um, I actually intended to have a meetup group today that was meant to be sort of a, a book club, you know, coming together talking about this topic. And it was intended to be earlier this morning, and then I needed to do a pretty last minute, you know, within a couple of days time change. And so some people weren't able to make that. So I want to start off by saying that I'm really sorry for the inconvenience that, that, you know, presented to folks who perhaps wanted to go and weren't able to make it. And for those that were able to make it, it was a phenomenal conversation about, you know, what it means to be an introvert how that's different from being sensitive, what it means when you have both of those traits. And so I just wanted to share it with all of you and I hope you enjoy. Mainly then what I'm gonna be doing is breaking this down into sort of the top 10 insights that we as a group took away from what it means to be a highly sensitive and or introvert uh, person (laughs) in today's world and trying to make a life. And so I'm breaking it down into sort of the top 10 things that we took away from the book. The first, that I thought was really interesting. In Susan Cain's book, uh, she does a great job of teasing out the difference between being an introvert, an extrovert, highly sensitive or reactive, that's another term that's used for the trait, and uh, reward sensitive or sensation seeking. A lot of times it's easy to assume that if a person is an introvert, then they are inherently also sensitive, but that's not always true. And likewise, if you're an extrovert, then you must always be a sensation seeker, you know, a thrill seeker, which also is not true. So I just thought it was really interesting how all of these things can play together. And in fact, you can be some muddled converse, like com- conversation. <laughs> you can be a sort of muddled combination of these things. So just to give you, uh, go, go through each of these things. To be an introvert versus an extrovert, really that spectrum is not about, it's not about whether or not you like people, and it's not, doesn't have much to do with whether or not you like stimulus. It has a lot more to do with how you recharge, and in particular, how you recharge as it relates to socializing. So introverts, if you were, if you're not quite sure if you're an introvert or an extrovert, What really defines an introvert is that they feel recharged by spending time alone. That's different from an extrovert who, I can't even fathom this, but they truly feel recharged by spending time with other people. So it doesn't have anything to do with whether you do or do not like human beings. It has everything to do with how do you feel after spending an a substantial amount of time with people? Do you feel like you're recharged and now you can sort of go out and conquer the world? Or do you feel like, yes, that was lovely, and now I would like to retire and retreat to recharge alone? So that's really what discerns introvert versus extrovert. Now, sensitive has, it's much less to do with whether or not you want to spend a lot of time with people, 
at least not in particular, and more to do with how you respond to your environment more generally. So someone who is sensitive would tell you that they don't necessarily love loud spaces. There's too much stimulus. They probably don't like violent movies. It's just too much going on. It pulls at the heartstrings too hard. Uh, and then conversely, someone who is not sensitive tends to prefer more stimulus. Uh, their sweet spot is just different. And then, so that's, there's introvert, extrovert, sensitive, and then finally, reward sensitive or sensation seeking, which has to do with how sensitive you are to dopamine, really. Like, how do you respond when you, when something good happens to you, how do you respond? So sensation seekers get extremely excited when something good happens to them. <laughs> so, and they therefore will continue seeking out more of that experience. So it's pretty common for some of these things to overlap, as you can imagine, but I just kind of want to break down each of these things and how they might combine. So as an example, you can be an introvert and a sensitive person. Examples of characters that you might know and recognize, uh, Einstein is a great example of a man who is both an introvert and a sensitive person. He loved his patent job where there was virtually no interaction with too many people. It was a very quiet job and there was a great deal of time left to him to think. And he loved that because that's what allowed him the bandwidth to sort of piece together his theory of relativity. Eleanor Roosevelt is a good example of this. She was an introvert and she was very sensitive. You know, she was matched with a man who's perhaps one of the most extroverted presidents we've had, but she had a very like visceral conscience. And uh, in terms of some of our more fictional characters, a great example of this would be Yoda, <laughs> our little Yoda, introvert and sensitive. Extrovert and sensitive. So that's, a, you can have this combination. So just to be clear, of those people who identify as being highly sensitive, 70% also identify as being an introvert. But that leaves a pretty solid 30%, which is a significant number, who are extroverts. So you can, in fact, recharge by being around people, but still, you know, look around in your environment and find yourself sensitive to it. So I don't know that these individuals would have self-identified in this way, but Martin Luther King Jr. seems like a perfect example of this. Uh, certainly a highly sensitive person, but by no means an introvert. He thrived around other people. And again, I take no, I make no claim to know her personally or to know if she identifies in this way, but her writing certainly presents as though this would apply to her. So this is Elizabeth Gilbert, who in Eat, Pray, Love talks about how easy it is for her to make friends. She's affable and, you know, just and extremely warm. It comes through in any uh, presentation that she makes to a crowd or any kind of recording she might make outwardly. So she's very approachable. But she also describes herself as being thin-skinned. So sensitive, but extroverted. You can also be an introvert and a sensation seeker. So a sensation seeker, again, is someone who looks for novelty. You're trying to find the next great thrill. A lot of people assume that you are, if you're a sensation seeker, you've got to be an extrovert, but that's not true. I mean, think about a rock climber. It's a pretty dangerous sport to get into. It's certainly going to give you a thrill, but it's primarily something you would do alone. 
a good example of this, and once again, I've never spoken to him personally, so he might not identify in this way, but uh, President Barack Obama strikes me as this. So introverted, but he ran for the President of the United States. On some level, he's got to be a sensation seeker. So, and he, however, many people commented that he would have dinner with his family and then spend four or five hours alone working through problems. So he was introverted. And if you're looking for a more fictional character to represent this, my friend Han Solo. <laughs> He's a cranky, introverted sensation seeker, but by all means, he was a sensation seeker, and he was most definitely an introvert. He didn't thrive off of being around other people. Uh, and then you have extrovert sensation seeker. I looked around for uh, like a really good example of this, and the... In terms of what I see around me, I don't know anyone personally, and I couldn't even really think of a character in a film, although I feel like there should be such a creature. Maybe a, a lot of the heroes we came to love, so potentially uh, John Wayne and his characters. You know, he's an extrovert and a sensation seeker, but then, you know, sometimes he's alone, so I don't really know. But one person in particular that came to mind was actually President Trump. Full disclosure, I'm not a big fan. But I will tell you, he is probably one of the most distilled versions of an extrovert I've ever seen in my life. That is a man who just is, I, I, can't, I don't think the man ever needs to spend time alone. Not based on what I'm seeing. Even when he's alone, he's tweeting. So if you want to see a really prime time example of someone who is both very extroverted and certainly a sensation seeker, you know, he seeks out, um, I don't necessarily wonder if I want to say seeks out drama, but he seems to thrive off of a, an adventurous, like a conversation that gets heated quickly. He thrives off of conflict, for better or for worse. So um, I feel like there's other examples of extroverts who are also sensation seekers. I just felt like he was perhaps one of the best examples I could find. And then beyond all of that, you could be an introvert, sensitive, and a sensation seeker. You could also be an extrovert who is sensitive and a sensation seeker. So an example of someone who is an introvert, who's sensitive, but also kind of seeks novelty, might be someone like John Muir. Definitely an introvert. He loved spending time alone. You could tell based on his description of where he lived, woot woot Martinez, where I grew up, um, that he described it as a place that would suck the life out of him. Only a sensitive person would be able to use language in quite that way. You know, to be around the busyness, like, depletes me. That is a sensitive person. And then in terms of being a sensation seeker, well, you'd have to be one hell of a sensation seeker to decide, I'm just going to go off into the mountains. I'm just going to go play in Yosemite long before it was ever a park. And then you have extrovert, sensitive, and sensation seeking. <laughs> and I was looking around for actual people who embodied this, and I'm sure they exist all over. But what came to my mind was Moana. <laughs> so if you haven't seen Disney's Moana, it's a pretty good example. She's certainly an extrovert. She seems to thrive in her community just fine. Um, she's sensitive. So there's the first part of the film. You're seeing her with this giant leaf hovering over a tiny little baby turtle who needs to make it to the ocean. And she kind of gets it. She's this little itty bitty toddler. And she understands like, oh, this poor creature wants to get to the ocean. And so she, you know, he gets a leaf over him and protects the poor turtle from the seagulls so he can make it. 
and sensation seeker. You know, the whole song of like, I want to know how far it goes. I want to know where the ocean will lead me. So she wants adventure. She seeks it out. So she would be a very good example of someone who embodies all of these things. So it also, what I appreciate about understanding each of these traits is, well, one, they are distinct traits. So it's not like, oh, if you're an introvert, then I can just put you into a single box and then be done with it. There are lots of introverts who are not sensitive. My fiance is one of them. He loves spending time alone, but he is by no means a sensitive person. And there are people who are sensitive and who are introverted, like myself. And there are people who have all of these sort of strange combinations of each of these traits. And that's what makes us so fun and rich and complex. Um, so in, I appreciated that in Susan Cain's book, she really teased out all of these dif distinct qualities. So that's number one. <laughs> all of that was number one. <laughs> number two, what I appreciate, you know, some, of, some of the stuff that came out in our conversation, uh, the difference between character and personality. So according to Susan Cain, there was a time in our history where we were much more interested in a person's character than we were in their personality. So we were more interested in seeing what they did behind closed doors. Do they have integrity? Do their actions match their words? Then we were in um, to, to know if they were outwardly likable. You know, do, is he friendly? Does he make me feel good when I'm around him? And that's the difference there. Character is, you know, to what extent your actions and your words align. Personality is how do you make, how do you impact other people in your social engagements? You know, what's the character that you build of yourself as you present yourself to the world? And it's important to know the distinctions between those two things, because according to Susan Cain and the research that she's done, we've become a world that's become almost, um, I don't know if I want to say addicted or enchanted by, but we're certainly drawn to personality more than we are character. You know, a person can have tremendous character, but if they're not flashy, if they aren't compelling speakers, we might dismiss what they have to say without giving them a chance. Number three, this is what, something I thought was interesting, and in the group as we were talking, this idea of an ORCID hypothesis. So based on her research, uh, Susan Cain's research, and uh, on Elaine Aaron, which is the primary go-to person that Susan Cain refers to when talking about this ORCID hypothesis, uh, she refers to highly sensitive people. So it's easy to imagine that sensitive people would be, I, I use this word a lot, snowflakes. But that's not necessarily true. Interestingly enough, highly sensitive people, if they are raised in a fairly stable environment, they can actually be less prone to illness, less prone to depression and anxiety, and more resilient when trouble hits. On the flip side, if their environment is not conducive to stability and, and comfort, like if they don't grow up in an environment that's uh, stable, that's when they're more prone to depression and anxiety and more prone to getting sick more often. So as a kid, I can tell you that for myself, there was a lot of instability. I mean, I, there was stability in the most important things. I knew my family loved me. I knew uh, that I would be cared for. The instability came from some of the more external circumstances, you know, divorce and a lot of moves, probably once a year on average. So it's just a lot of instability. And for a sensitive nervous system, that's not always ideal, and hence, as a result, I tended to get sick pretty frequently. I mean, that and I was also a child, and child children, and childs, <laughs> children tend to get sick anyway. 
but the combination of those two things led to a perfect storm of me being out sick quite often. And then as I got to know myself better and understand how my system worked, the less often I had gotten sick as a result. So interesting, I think. Number four, why do highly sensitive people exist? This is a question Susan Cain asks, and in her research, she finds answers in, once again, Elaine Aaron's work. Sensitive people, you would think, might have been weeded out in the evolution evolutionary process, in the process of evolution, either way. You would think that they wouldn't have the stomach for the tough life that is survival. As it turns out, however, first of all, sensitivity isn't just found in human beings, it's found in multiple species throughout the earth, and it seems to come up in the same proportion in each species that it surfaces. It's about, 20, uh, about 15 to 20% in every species that you find it at all. And what Elaine Aaron says is, if you can imagine a world of a variety of different dangers, there are many creatures who will do better being bold. If you need to find the next patch of food, if you need to find another, a new territory, you need to be bold, you need to be willing to take a risk. But if there's a predator nearby, it pays to have someone or one member of your tribe, your family, your pack, who's more vigilant, who's looking out and who's paying closer attention to the nuances and details in their environment. There are times when it's evolutionarily advantageous to be bold, and there are times when it's actually evolutionarily advantageous to be timid. An example they bring up, and by say they, I mean Susan Cain, who's referencing uh, Elaine Aaron, there was a study where a gentleman tried to get a batch of fish to study the breakdown of these two groups, and the bold fish fell into the original trap that he created right away. They were bold, they were curious, they came up and got them. But there was about 20% of them who hang, like they were hanging back, going, I don't know about this. Something seems, forgive me, fishy about this. And so we had to create a much more elaborate trap to snag them. What that lends the impression of is, in that case, it was advantageous to be highly sensitive, to be more vigilant, to be more reactive. But on the flip side, the same scientist said that when he put all of these fish in the new tank, the bold fish adjusted rather quickly and were eating a regular amount of food five days before their, their more sensitive counterparts. So those fish, in that instance, and in that part type of environment, didn't, it was disadvantageous to have a more sensitive nervous system. So you can see why it would probably be the case that more bold fish thrive most of the time, but you can see why it would also be true that the sensitive trait never really got weeded out. It was always wise to have a few in, in the group, in the tribe, in the pack. Number five. Not all cultures have an extrovert ideal. Certainly here in America we do. Uh, I believe in Canada there certainly is. There's many cultures for whom you know extroversion is sort of this ideal. The best leader is an extrovert. The best heroes are extroverts. Uh, go to China, Korea, Japan. You find that introversion is honored, respected, and maybe in some cases even revered. 
So children are encouraged to be conscientious and, and studious, whereas here they're encouraged to be rounded, to seek out a lot of extracurricular activities. I hated seeking out extracurricular activities. I knew I needed to do it in order to get into college, but I did not want to. I just wanted to grab my book and study. Thank you very much. So I would have loved to have been in a culture where when I grabbed a book and hung out in a corner, people said of me, oh, look at her, so conscientious. <sighs> Wish I were more like that. That was not my experience. Most people were perfectly delighted not to be like me. <laughs> so, uh, Number six, we can push the boundaries of our comfort zone, but only to a point. So I'm going to actually bring in another party here. So again, most of this work is uh, talking about Susan Cain's book. She, In her book, when she talks about comfort zone, uh, she the example she uses is her fear of public speaking. She really... Uh, the fear she felt when it came to public speaking was akin to the way a new soldier might feel when readying for battle. It was terrifying for her. And you can even in her writing, she uses vivid language to express just how difficult it was for her to get up and speak to a crowd. However, she's done a phenomenal TED Talk. She's done, since then, many, many talks. And each one of them, as far as I'm concerned, are fabulous. You would never know that she has any kind of fears around you know, public speaking or the like. Uh, but what she confesses in her book is that she had to learn that as a skill. And she learned that through going to workshops and, you know, she talks about a number of different things that were helpful for her. But at the end of the day, she sort of said, well, I'm never going to love public speaking. At least that's the impression you get from her writing. But I've learned to be okay with it. I can get a little excited. You know, I, can, I know how to prepare for it. I know what my strengths are and so on. So she knows how to push the boundaries of her temperament, of her comfort zone. Now, this is bringing in a whole new person. Uh, Andy Mort, in his podcast, The Gentle Rebel, actually referenced someone else who, I couldn't find it, so my apologies, but uh, another writer who talked about this idea of the capacity zone. So rather than talk about the comfort zone in terms of, uh, like, oh, well, you're leaving your comfortable spot, she said, eh, I mean, no, who wants to leave their comfort zone? That's icky. Instead, she said, let's talk about your capacity, about teasing out and improving your capacity to, and sort of expanding it out. So the metaphor that was used in his podcast is, you know, imagining a rubber band that when you first get it, it's, it's rather stiff. You're kind of gradually bending and flexing it and trying to increase just how far you can expand it. If you expand too fast, too far, too quickly, all of that, it snaps. That's what can happen when it comes to our temperaments and our comfort zones. If you try and push too far, too fast, it falls apart. That's what can happen to a highly sensitive person. You can push the boundaries of your comfort zone, but don't do it too much and don't do it too fast. You just want to do it gradually and you want it to be sort of like when you're working out. You want it to be a pleasant burn. <laughs> so yes, you can push, but don't push so far that you no longer re like recognize yourself. Uh, number seven, introverts and highly sensitive people aren't big multitaskers. Shocking turn of events there. So extroverts are known to be drawn to 
uh, multitasking, even though I think what science continues to prove to all of us is no one actually multitasks ever. What we think of as multitasking is actually just switching back and forth between tasks extremely quickly. Highly sensitive people and introverts don't tend to do this very well. Highly sensitive people all the more so. They don't like it, they'd rather concentrate on one thing at a time. Big part of the reason for this is that they're processing their environment so deeply all the time that if they're trying to do five things at once, their brain just can't compute. It sort of goes on burnout. An extrovert isn't necessarily processing quite as deeply, or at least I should say someone who's less sensitive. And that's not to say that they aren't capable of profound and deep thoughts. I am in no way trying to say extroverts or non, like, you know, regular sensitivity, you know, non-HSPs are lacking in depth or are dumb. That's not it at all. But it's just that with highly sensitive people, they constantly are diving so deeply, conscious in some cases and unconscious in many others, that when they try to multitask, they burn out very, very quickly. They, they're much better served focusing on just one thing at a time. It's part of why they like silence and solitude, it's part of why they're not a big fan of uh, open floor plans with regard to where they work. Number eight, both introverts and highly sensitive people tend to be good at delayed gratification. As a general rule, this isn't universal, obviously, but with introverted people and with highly sensitive people, what you'll start to see is this ability to hold back. Yes, I would like that cool new toy, that new thing, that new sweater. Yes, I want that ice cream. But they also, again, because highly sensitive people are processing so deeply, and introverted people tend to be sort of, um, they're good at noticing patterns. And again, they don't want as much distraction. They're both able to recognize when their impulses are shouting and when perhaps they need to quiet down their impulses and use their prefrontal cortex to have a conversation about long-term versus short-term goals. Extroverts and non-sensitive people they often are more prone to falling victim to impulses. That doesn't mean an extrovert will always just follow their impulse without questions asked. They'll just be more prone to it more often. Uh, number nine, introverts and highly sensitive people can make terrific leaders, even though that would seem, well, it, I don't want to say oxymoronical, but it, it would, most people find it difficult to imagine a highly sensitive person in a leadership role just because it requires so many quick decisions and sort of decisive action. So it's not just the ability to make a decision but to act on that choice. But in fact, highly sensitive people make phenomenal leaders. It kind of depends on what's going on around them. So examples of fabulous leaders who were sensitive and introverted, Mahatma um, Gandhi and Eleanor Roosevelt. They were sensitive, they were introverted, they did not want to be a part of big crowds, but they pushed through because it was in service to something that really mattered to them. Sort of side note here, when it comes to public speaking, more introverts and extroverts seem to have problems with public speaking. However, more often than not, if the topic that the introvert is being forced to talk about is of interest to them, their ability to have that conversation improves markedly. So with highly sensitive people and to a large extent introverts, when they're interested in a thing, they can talk on it for hours. So here's the catch though. Introverts and highly sensitive people make the best leaders 
when the people they are working with, so the people they are managing, are extroverts. Because what introverts are really good at is listening, observing, paying attention. What highly sensitive people are good at is integrating. Again, too, hanging back, observing, you know, being slow and deliberate before making a choice. Extroverts love this. They want to be heard. <laughs> They're social butterflies. They have so many good ideas and they want to tell you all about them. So when a manager says, sure, tell me about those things, I'm more than happy to listen to you. It's a really nice relationship. If you have an introverted leader with a whole bunch of introverts underneath them, it's less effective. The ability to create a team ethos is more challenging because they're all sort of doing their own things and working in their own heads. And then the flip side, if you have a team full of introverts, in many respects, it can be better to have an extrovert as the leader because they're going to be good at charging and introverts will be good at sort of like holding back, waiting, and they, like they're, they tend to work well independently, but they need someone to hold the group together. So you'll see over and over that this balance is super important. And finally, number 10, you have to take the good with the bad. Whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, a sensation seeker or a sensitive person, highly sensitive people are capable of creativity, leadership, thoughtful inquiry. They're capable of crafting beautiful works of art as well as fabulous laws. They think through things deeply. However, overwhelm a highly sensitive person and they could, be, they could not care less about what's happening to you. When an otherwise empathetic, compassionate, highly sensitive person is overstimulated, they're oblivious to the needs of other people around them. They're far too wrapped up in their own drama. And on the flip side, if you're, a, like, if you're an extrovert, they make great adventurers. They are able to make effective decisions quickly. They make other people around them feel welcome. As a kid, even I can remember watching as there were other children in this large school of mine who could, with absolute ease, invite others. No, come join. It's okay. You know, like we, we're all one student body. Let's have a great time. And they were authentic. One girl in particular, I remember how touched I was in a PE class when there was a girl who was very, very timid and she didn't know whether she wanted to join, but she kind of didn't want to feel like she was the, you know, the term we would have used back then was loser. And you could see the ambivalence and this bright, cheery, blonde haired, blue eyed girl who is probably, probably would have been considered sort of the popular one, you know, it was school. So she reached out to this timid girl and pulled her into the circle, like, come join us. It's okay. And I thought it was so beautiful. It's not that I wouldn't want to do that, but my ability to do that, certainly at that age, is dampened. I, that's challenging for me. So to watch extroverted people who have this ease when they are in conversation with other people, it's lovely. My dad is an extrovert. I can watch, I, that's how I learned some of the skills uh, in, in socializing. My mom, who's an, definitely an introvert, she would have deep, meaningful conversations with me and with her friends, and that was my um, like preference. That was my preference. My dad, he was the one who could make people really laugh. Immediate warmth. Like, he just exuded personality. 
And I'd watch as people around him would be affected by him. I think that's really neat. I want to be able to do that. So I learned, I'm still, I'm by no means anything like him, but I learned some things like, oh, that's how you can make someone feel comfortable right away. You know, there are certain tells that he gives to other people to say, yes, I'm interested in you, that my mom isn't as uh, animated when she does it. And so I learned how to blend some of these things together, especially as I'm educating or as when I'm talking with other people. And I understand that there's good and bad. You know, if you're an introvert, if you're highly sensitive, some of the things that we have to offer might include thoughtful reflection. We listen more than we talk. We pay attention. But the downside is we can be timid. We can be shy. We can be selfish, just like anyone else. Uh, we can be wrapped up in our own internal drama so much so that we can't even see what's going on in the external world. For extroverts, they can be friendly, warm, inviting. They can get things done. You know, they can make the world sparkle. But sometimes they forget to slow down. Sometimes they forget to take a breath. And sometimes they forget, you know, the quick decision isn't always the right one. So these were just the things that came up in our discussion earlier today, and uh, I felt like they were valuable, and they, they certainly added a lot of value for me, and so I wanted to share it with all of you. And I'd love to hear more thoughts from you. If you've read Susan Cain's book, then great. If you want to contribute any thoughts when you were reading it, for better or for worse, uh, or maybe if you saw her TED Talk, if you go and look up uh, Susan Cain's TED Talk, uh, Quiet, she did a great uh, talk. I'm using the word talk about a zillion times right now. She, so a wonderful presentation. <laughs> and uh, I'd love to hear from you, as always. If you want to reach me, please write to me. At, you can find me at www.thehealthysensitive.com. Uh, you can email me through my website. You can check in with me. I can follow me on Twitter at uh, HealthyHSP. Um, Facebook, The Healthy Sensitives, really just any social media you like, <laughs> Instagram, I believe that was uh, Healthy Sensitive as well. So love to hear from you. And uh, one way or another, I hope you have a wonderful week. And I will uh, look forward to speaking with you one week from today. Thanks and take good care.